This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, July 10, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we'll talk with author and candidate John Woodman. We'll talk about how we fix America, which is the title of his book that outlines what's wrong with America and what we can do to fix it. Mr. Woodman is running for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 7th District of Missouri, an area that covers southwest Missouri, including Branson, Springfield, Joplin, and surrounding areas. But first, a message from the League of Women Voters. Be an informed voter. If your state hasn't yet had a primary vote, then plan the vote on that day. Missouri's primary is on August 2nd. In any case, whether voting in the primary or the general, go to vote411.org for a nonpartisan guide about the candidates and issues that you will see on your ballot. Again, that address is vote411.org. And speaking of voting, have you ever thought that your vote doesn't count? With all the money dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for the candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. In fact, major news organizations measure the worth of a candidate by how much money he or she can raise, and often they won't even give any airtime to candidates unless they can prove that they've raised a certain amount of cash. This gives enormous power and influence to money in our political system. And worse, it injects corruption into our government. If you're concerned about it, join the club. I mean, literally, join the club. The club I'm talking about is Move to Amend, an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with John Woodman, who is running as a Democrat for the seat for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 7th District in Missouri. Now John has some ideas on how we can fix America. In fact, he's written a course book on this topic. The course is called How We Fix America. The course highlights how our economic system of capitalism has drifted from what he calls American dream capitalism to vampire capitalism. Now, it sounds scary because when you think of vampires, you think of something that's going to suck the blood out of your body. Well, vampire capitalism kind of works that way, but instead of stealing your blood, it sucks the money right out of your pocket. And we're talking about a lot of money here, to the tune of $24,000 per year or more for the average citizen. This isn't just some random number that John pulled out of a hat. It's based on real-life calculations that factor in such things as the increase in productivity over the years, but with decreasing worker pay. If productivity is going up and pay is going down, well, where's all that money going? We'll get into it right now. So, John, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Dan. Good. So, before we get into the course that you created and the profound discoveries that you reveal— Uh, Let's first talk about your candidacy for a U.S. congressional seat representing the 7th District of Missouri. 
After reading your book, I get an idea of where you're coming from in terms of the rocky shores that our nation is drifting into. But you've done more than charting a course out of these dangerous waters. I mean, you're actually running for Congress. So what motivated you to take this bold step? I think the run for Congress really came out of uh, the same place as the book and out of the quest for answers. Uh, back in 2016, I decided to get really serious about a question that had been bothering me for a long time. And the question was, what's actually wrong with America and how could we possibly fix it? Mm-hmm. And I looked around me and it seemed like everyone around me had sort of a sense that something was wrong. But if you asked three different people, you might get four or five different answers. And I decided what I was going to do was look for answers. I didn't know how long it would take. It took about five years uh, of searching and research before I felt like I'd come up with the answers I was looking for. And then I spent about another half year writing them up. And by the time I finished, I decided, you know what, I'm going to run for Congress. Mm -hmm. Is it just based on your feelings that that came out of doing all this research? I mean, you've obviously gotten a lot smarter to, you know, quote one of the chapters in your book here. But um, so you're now going to apply that wisdom that you've created or that you've that you've come across over the last five years and, and make it a make a run for Congress then. Um, Well, you know, the whole purpose wasn't just to find an answer, but to find something that we can actually do something with. Uh, You know, know, the goal is to try and light a way for us to actually change the country. And one of the things that I found, one of the things that I realized was that we actually have all of the resources that we need right now to massively and positively transform the future of America. It's just a matter of seeing what we can uh, become and of deciding to do it and of standing up and insisting that we actually do it. Well, let's get into it then, because in, in the course you developed and that the book is called the course book is called How We Fix America. You talk about these two types of capitalism, something you call American dream capitalism and vampire capitalism. So can you right now just kind of give us a brief rundown of these forms of capitalism and how we as a nation drifted into what is, by your definition, vampire capitalism? Sure. From the from the late 1930s up until about 1980, uh, we had a particular structure to our economy. And in that economy that I call American dream capitalism, everybody was getting better off. Uh, if you were among the wealthy, you were getting better off. Uh, you were, in essence, you were getting about a three quarters of a percent raise in your income every year. And that was after inflation. If you were middle class, you were getting better off twice as fast as the wealthy. So you were getting about one and a half percent increase in your income every single year. Again, that's after inflation. And I'm not talking about just progressing through a career and and being promoted. I'm talking about the middle class as a whole. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that every year we were getting better and better at producing wealth. You see the same thing for those who were at the bottom of the economic scale. Those Americans who most needed opportunity 
they were getting better off the fastest at all, of all. They were getting better off more than three times as fast as the wealthy. If you were at the bottom of the economic ladder every year, your income was going up about two and a half percent beyond inflation. So here's what that means. After 10 years, you might have stayed in the same job for 10 years, but after 10 years, just because everybody was getting better off, you would find yourself making about 25% more in real terms than you'd been making 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And so there was this sense that things were getting better for everybody. Those at the bottom were well on their way to joining the middle class. And that lasted for an entire generation. It lasted up until about 1980. And then suddenly, very subtly, but very suddenly, something shifted in the economy. And we really switched around 1980 from this American dream capitalism that gave birth to the American dream to what we have today. And the shift was very subtle at first, but it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on. And it can, it's continuing to get bigger today. And the new economy, yeah, the new economy I call vampire capitalism. And I guess in a way that started with this thing called trickle-down economics, right? I mean, I remember that from back in the 1980s when they talked about the, the idea that if you give rich people more money, it trickles down to the rest of society. I mean, that was an abject failure, right? Yeah, trickle-down economics is certainly a core part of it. Mm-hmm. And there are all these different components to trickle-down economics. One of the key ideas of trickle-down economics is just cut taxes. Let's cut taxes. Now, cutting taxes, what cutting taxes really has meant has been that we cut taxes, particularly for those up at the very top. Mm-hmm. And 50 years, we now have 50 years of research into the actual results of that particular kind of policy. And the results, not just here in America, but across every country that's done it over the past 50 years are consistent. It doesn't benefit those in the middle, doesn't benefit ordinary citizens. All that cutting taxes for the rich does is make the rich richer. And it generally does so at the expense of everybody else. So, you know, the rich continue to go forward. Everybody else stands still or maybe even goes backwards. Yeah. But doesn't American dream capitalism, wouldn't that naturally evolve into vampire capitalism? I mean, when you think about it, capitalism in general is all about maximizing profits and minimizing costs. So isn't vampire capitalism sort of the natural outcome of uh, American dream capitalism? It didn't. It didn't. It didn't evolve into vampire capitalism for a generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether that's because we paid particular attention to it. Um, but for an entire generation, it stayed pretty much the same as it had been. Mm-hmm. Well, you wrote that American dream capitalism was all about giving ordinary Americans an opportunity to become prosperous and maybe even join the rich up at the heights of success and prosperity. But I guess what you're saying is there's really no guardrails at the top, is there? I mean, if you're a Jeff Bezos or a Elon Musk or whatever, 
you ride it, you just keep riding it higher and higher. I mean, you literally, you go into space, right? Um, what can we ordinary Americans do at this point to put limits on the, this, this rise of, of wealth in the most rich people or in just rich people in general? What should we do? Well, we have to get together and we have to change the rules of the economy. And there are a lot of these rules. Uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds of these rules that have been changed over the last 40 years. And the economy itself, you know, when I talk about vampire capitalism, I'm talking about an economy that's basically flipped upside down from the American dream capitalism that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, in the vampire capitalism economy, those at the bottom are better off than they were 40 years ago, but it's really only because of government benefits. If you look at the actual wages that are being paid to America's least paid workers, those who most need opportunity, those uh, those workers really have not gotten a meaningful raise in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Middle-class Americans are doing a bit better off, but a lot of that's because now instead of having one parent working outside of the home, now you've got both parents working outside of the home. Yeah. But if if you're at the top, your wealth just continually explodes like a supernova. Or to come back to the same analogy that, or the same type of analogy that you used, uh, American dream capitalism was an escalator to the to to prosperity for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, vampire capitalism. Those at the bottom are going nowhere. Uh, those in the middle class are. It's it's like a staircase that you have to drag yourself up. But if you are at the very top, vampire capitalism is a rocket ship up into the stratosphere, and that's both figurative and literal. So. In let's uh, let's talk about the uh, opening lines of lesson five, and it's called lesson five in your book is called the vampire conspiracy, and you quote Warren Buffett as saying, "quote There's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war, and we're winning." And this is sobering because you go on to write about why we ordinary Americans abandoned. American dream capitalism for vampire capitalism. And I didn't quite understand how or why that happened, though. Perhaps you could explain it a little bit better. So could you walk us through literally how we Americans willingly let go of the American dream capitalism and unleash the vampires upon ourselves? I think in some cases it was willing. In some cases it was a matter that we weren't paying attention. One of the things that the vampires have done is they have put out narratives that they felt would help ordinary Americans go along with their politics and their and their programs. Now, how vampire capitalism has been enacted, it's been enacted by changing the rules of the economy. So how do you change the rules of the economy? Well, you do that through politicians. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot There's been a great deal of buying off politicians, making campaign contributions, uh, putting in power the people you want in power who will change the the rules for you. Lobbyists actually going to politicians and writing laws, showing up and saying, okay, here is a model. Here's the legislation we would like for you to, 
to pass. But it's not just that. It's also that in many instances, the vampires have convinced us through media, through propaganda, and sometimes through sponsorship of people in the media, and sometimes through direct ad campaigns, they've convinced us to go along with them. And we're going to intend in a minute because I, I really want to get to that point of how we get smarter. And that was one of the one of my best uh, parts of your book, one of my favorite parts of your book. But let's go back to um, the idea of these of this buying off politicians. I mean, we all know about the Citizens United decision of of uh, of 2011. And one of the thing I've noticed, though, and I don't know if you studied this at all, but one of the things that. I've noticed is that the the pay the staff pay for congressional staff, not the Congress members themselves, but their staff that's supposed to support them, is uh, is been called starvation wages, and this is the staff that congressional people rely upon. And and if you make it to Congress uh, representing Missouri, um, you'll probably see that in action. And when the staff gets paid less. They don't have the time to put in the research to help write these bills. So I can see where congressmen would say, well, you know, I don't have the research. I don't have the time. Uh, I don't have the expertise in writing and structuring these bills. I'll just take this from one of my lobbyists because it looks pretty good to me. And that's what makes it to the floor. Is that an oversimplification or does it really work that way? I don't think that's an oversimplification at all. And I think the uh, I think the staffing of congressional assistants and also actual agencies that are there to provide information to our members of Congress, like the Congressional Research Service, we need for those to be fully staffed so that they can actually provide uh, our representatives and our senators with the resources that they need to craft bills so that they're not relying on lobbyists to write new legislation for them. And that is one that is a good example of the kind of rule that we need to change in our politics to clear the way to get back to an American dream capitalism economy. If you look past the problem that we have been talking about the most, that problem is the is the restructuring of the economy. But behind that problem and underlying that is essentially the corruption of the political system Mm -hmm. and the fact that we do not have government that serves the best interest of the people. We have government that serves the best interest of special interest. So if we want to change the economy, we really also have to change our political system. Yeah. To do that, uh, what I propose is comprehensive, thorough, no holds barred anti-corruption reform that will really clean out the system, not do a half job, but go into every nook and cranny with a scrub scrub brush and bleach Mm -hmm. and clean out all of the pathways of corruption so that we can bring back government that serves the best interest of the people instead of the best interest of special interest. Well, I remember when Trump was running in in 2016, he said we need to drain the swamp. And I think everybody got behind that. They it, it's, a, it's a great slogan, right? And it's probably it's one of those. It's a great slogan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it worked, right? But um, 
I guess it's one thing. It's one thing to say, you know, we're going to end corruption, but I mean, how would you go about doing that, though? Because you know, there's, there's, it's pretty deeply ingrained. Um, one of the things, if I may ramble on here a bit, one of the things that sort of bothers me about this duopoly that we're in, Democrats and Republicans, and I'm keeping in mind that you're running as a Democrat, but um, they spend an awful lot of time doing nothing but raising money. I've heard somewhere around uh, two hours a day they actually spend on doing the stuff that they're hired to do by the people. The rest of the hours of the day, they're shaking hands with uh, potential donors, uh, either physically shaking hands or calling them on the phone and what's called dialing for dollars. Uh, This becomes this sort of money machine that's going on, and it's... It's going to take a Herculean task, I think, to uh, to unwind all this stuff, don't you think? I do, and that's why I talk about not just one thing like campaign finance reform. That's why I use the phrase comprehensive, thorough, no-holds-barred anti-corruption reform. And my approach to this has been to keep an eye out for ideas wherever I can run across them, of how we can unrig the system. Mm -hmm. To date, I have about 80 different proposals uh, for for different corruption rat holes that we can fill. One of my fears is that we will get someone in power, uh, perhaps at the presidential level, who says, okay, let's let's deal with corruption, and we do a half job of it. Right. I really feel that we need to do a thorough job of it. And so, you know, that's that's why I have a running list. Okay. Have you ever heard of the organization called Move to Amend? I have heard of Move to Amend. That's to do with um, is that to do with Citizens United? That's to do with Citizens United, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's one of the things. But they actually, uh, we had them on the podcast here once, and I've talked to them on previous podcasts as well. Um, yeah, they are proposing uh, another amendment to our Constitution. I believe it'd be the 28th Amendment, which essentially says corporations are not people and therefore do not get uh, the rights of people, particularly the First Amendment rights, which is what, the uh, Citizens United emphasized, they basically said, hey, corporations are people in that they can exercise their First Amendment rights and therefore dump as much money as they want into, you know, campaigns for individuals as far as well as campaigns for for issues. And yes. um, so I think that would be a, a pretty good step. And I know there are a lot of um, uh, representatives and senators out there that have signed up with Move to Amend. I think even Cory Bush, who's here in St. Louis, uh, has signed up with it as well. So something worth checking out, Move to Amend. And that is one of the things that I talk about, is one of the major steps that we need to take. We need a constitutional amendment that will clarify and put in the U.S. Constitution that corporations are not people and money beyond a certain minimal point is not speech. What we have, what we have now, you know, we have a system in which an unlimited amount of money can be used to drown out the voices of other citizens, if you happen to be the person who has that unlimited amount of money. So what that gives rise to is, you know, I don't know if you read the same book in high school that I did. I know a lot of people have read it, a book by George, I think it was by George Orwell, called Animal Farm. 
and they had these animals that took over this farm and one of the prime rules of the farm after the animals took over was that all animals were equal mm-hmm. well the, the pigs end up be, ended up being in charge and by the time the book was all over that rule had been altered mm-hmm. from all animals are equal to all animals are equal but some animals are much more equal than others <laughs> yeah And this idea that money is speech and you can spend an unlimited amount of it, that's that that is in our own government, Mm -hmm. a system where all citizens are equal, but some are much, much more equal than others because they have a million, two million, three million to spend on things like media and, and propaganda. And, and what has been called speech. And in doing so, they drown out the voices of their fellow citizens. Yeah. And you hit upon the word propaganda there, because that's one of my buzzwords, uh, because uh, I'm going to talk about lesson eight in your book, which is entitled, I believe, How We Get Smarter. And I got to admit, that was my favorite lesson, uh, because it really resonated with me with thoughts I've had in the past. Because any debate I ever get into, including my own brother, who's the polar opposite of me politically, I hope he's not listening to this, I always fall back on the principles that you just happen to highlight in this lesson. It's like, I probably could have written this lesson, but I'm glad you wrote it because then I didn't have to. Anyways, the overall principle is basically how to cut through the BS and get to the truth. And it requires some knowledge in terms of the logical fallacies that people use to manipulate you, to create propaganda, but also the value of critical thinking, you know, checking your sources as you highlight, listening to opposing views, and humility in the idea that you might be wrong. So can you discuss some of the logical fallacies used by manipulators, like the straw man argument or red herrings or whataboutism, et cetera? Because I think it's really important that people understand these fallacies and how powerful they can be when people don't know that they're being manipulated. Yeah, I, I think it is important for people to understand, well, fallacies. I have a couple of things in there. I have fallacies and I have a list of rules for getting smarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the rules include, uh, first of all, if you want to get smarter, you have to actually want to get smarter. You have to love wisdom and you have to love the truth. You have to really want to have the truth instead of just have whatever narrative you currently believe. Mm-hmm. You've got to listen to both sides. Uh, you've got to fact check the things that you hear. And you've particularly got to fact check uh, the people that you like, because it's never going to be the people that you don't like, the people you hate, who are, are going to fool you. It's going to be the people that you do like. Yeah, um, that's a good point. You, you need to get your information from a variety of sources and look for the ones that are more reliable and more factual. Um, and, you know, so, so there's a series of rules. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are also, in the, in the course, there's a list of fallacies and to compile the list of fallacies, I kind of just looked around me uh, and, and looked at political narratives that mm-hmm. I had heard. Uh, one of the most popular 
things that you see is a straw man attack. If you get in, if you get in a conversation with people, uh, they will use that uh, to attack you. They will misrepresent what you are saying uh, in an attempt to discredit you. And that's also sort of a, a form of uh, personal attack. Right. That's that's very popular if you get into a a conversation with someone on Facebook and you happen to make points that they can't really answer, they will turn to attacking you and discrediting you or, or at least trying to. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, at that point you just say, Hey, you know what, what, what you're doing is just a personal attack and it's what people do when they don't actually have an answer to the, to the points that have been raised. So, yeah. I mean, those are a couple of, of uh, examples. There are a bunch of them in the course, but yeah. those are a couple. Yeah, one of them that I run run into a lot is um, I rail against the January 6th insurrection. I just think it's one of the worst things that I've ever seen in my whole lifetime and, and, and worst political things, I should say. And and so every time I talk about it, people say, well, you know, what about Black Lives Matter and, and their, and their oh, yeah. riots and so on? And I say, OK, well, OK, we can talk about that. Right. Because I think that's wrong, too. That, you know, they shouldn't be you know, you shouldn't have riots at all. We can talk about that, but that's a separate conversation, right? We're talking about insurrection at this point. We're talking about uh, people that are going around, they want to hang the vice president. I mean, this is, you can't even compare it, but th there's this thing called whataboutism, right? Yeah. 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 So what about humility, though? Does humility play a part in getting smarter? Oh, yeah. You know, if you're going to get smarter, you have to be able to change your mind about things that you already believe. And one of the things, once I started digging deep into our politics and doing some of the things I've talked about, listening to both sides and fact checking both sides, um, one of the things that started happening to me was I started changing my mind a lot. Uh, and probably every issue I looked at, I realized that I didn't understand it in as much depth as I could understand it once I started really looking at it. But I was willing to change your mind. You won't get smarter unless you have the humility to be willing to admit that you were wrong about something. And one of the things I want to do is encourage people to uh, to be able to get smarter. And, you know, in order to, to do that, you've got to be willing to change your mind. Yeah. You talked about, about the concept of listening to people. And one of the things you hit upon, which I really liked was it isn't the people that you don't like that change your mind. It's the people that you like are going to change your mind. And these are the master manipulators, I call them, right? So these are the people that once they tell you something that you know is wrong or you've done the fact checking that it's wrong, you know, according to the lessons in your book, you're saying, hey, you know, sort of write that guy off in a sense because he's trying to manipulate you. So can you if, can you think of any some of the master manipulators these days uh, on both sides? I mean, on the right and the left. Right. It's always the people you like, always mm. the people you trust who are going to fool you. And so that's who you have to fact check the most. Um, the person 
that really comes to mind as a person that people trust and 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 so many keep trusting there are a lot of the one Mm -hmm. for me that most immediately comes to mind is is donald trump Mm -hmm. uh and and i hate to even bring up a specific name because there are so many people who are are so dedicated to continuing to listen to a particular person uh, that that once you bring up that specific name, they're going to say, you know what, I no, I trust this guy, you know, and they're going to they're going to tune you out. Yeah. But yeah. you again, you have to look, you have to test what the person has actually said, mm-hmm. and that's been done with Donald Trump. Yeah. And yeah. and the tests have revealed again and again and again that he has said things over and over and over that sometimes have been a little bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they've been quite misleading and sometimes they've been outright false. Right. So if you want to get smarter, if you want to get more in touch with the truth, you have to go against your instinct of continuing to listen to this person who has been proven to be the source of bad information you've got to stop listening to them. And it, you know, and you can ask the question, well, is this person lying or does this person just not know the truth? Well, the bottom line is it really doesn't matter. Right. Right. Because you identify a person as a source of bad information. It doesn't really matter what their motivation is. What matters is that you're getting bad information from them. And if you continue to listen to that person, you're going to get more bad information and you're going to get more misled. So what you need to do is stop listening to that person or those or those people. Yeah. And in the in the book, I refer to this as uh, I I say, stop drinking from poison wells. Mm -hmm. If you want to get better you got to stop drinking from poison wells. Now, once you've identified one of these people, it helps to also take a look at the people around them. Because when there is a person who is not being careful with the truth in one way or another, often you will find that that person is linked to and surrounded by other people who also are not careful with the truth. And so then, you know, you, you, you've kind of got to look at their contacts and the people with them and the people re- reinforcing their message and, and their, um, th- their network of people as well. Yeah, that, that's a really good point because they're all in on it, right? They're all in on this, on the, on the spreading of fallacies for some personal gain. One one thing that I found was that often there are people who are deliberate about it and they are spreading fallacy, as you said, for personal gain. That may be political gain. Yeah. It may be financial gain. It may be both. It may simply be some degree of fame that they can then turn into either political power or personal financial gain. But those birds of a feather tend to flock together. 
And in some cases, it's very deliberate. They know that they are putting out a false narrative in order to mislead people and profit from it. And they will see somebody else who's doing the same thing and they'll get together with them and they say, hey, you know what? We can reinforce each other's narratives and we can we can boost each other's profits. Now they know they know what the game is. You know, they're not going to be fooled by each other, but they will get together in the cases where it's deliberate to fool other people and and boost each other's gains. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up former President Trump as an example. I think he's a good example in terms of a manipulator, but I think he also takes it to a different level because this is what I see as being a red warning sign for me. When someone says, don't listen to those other people, they don't know what they're talking about. I am the one that has the truth, right? And some manipulators won't do that. They'll just, you know, the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, I don't think ever do that. I mean, as much as that guy goes off or, or for that matter, I got to balance it out and say Rachel Maddow, you know, they, they don't necessarily tell you not to listen to other people, but there are individuals like Trump who will say, don't listen to what they're telling you. And that really is kind of the basis of a cult in, in my vision, because you see these cult leaders, the David Koresh's, the Jim Joneses, they have the same approach. You know, don't listen to the outside world. Don't listen to what they're telling you. I will tell you the truth. And so it really is to me, that's a red flag right there. Don't get involved with these people. I think, you know, I think most people who are involved in, manip in manipulation and deceit have some degree of that. And in some cases, it may be a bit more subtle. In some cases, it may be that they hold up uh, another person and they say, or, or, or an entire other party, and they say, look, these people, they're crazy. And, and the, the message is there, but it's a bit more subtle. In other cases, like you said, it's it's flat out blatant. I'm the one telling you the truth. Listen to me. Don't listen to these people. Now, anytime you hear that, like you said, that's a big red warning flag. And one of the things that I say in the course is, hey, you know what? I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to tell you, go ahead and listen to all sides, but listen to all sides with judgment. And then you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to do my best to give you a set of rules in how you can discern propaganda from what's likely the truth, how you can discern uh, falsehood from truth. And I, so I'm going to give you this tool set and I want you to use this tool set. And you know what? Go ahead and use this tool set on me because it's a generic tool set that you can use on anybody. And if I'm not telling you the truth, then this list of fallacies that we talked about, and there are a lot more of them in propaganda techniques, you can use that to examine what I'm telling you. Yeah. And, and so that's, yeah, it's an entirely different approach. That kind of reminds me when my son was real young, he was like four or five years old. And I realized at that point, he was believing everything I would tell him. And, you know, <laughs> you know, have fun with him, right? But, but I would tell him some of the most outrageous things and he would start believing it and then I would laugh. And he'd, he'd say, he'd get all confused and like, why are you telling me, why are you not telling me the truth? And the lesson from me was listen to everything, even those that you trust, 
listen to what they're saying and does it make sense to you? You know, so it's a it's a great way I think of of training children when they're very young. I mean, you don't lie to them about you know really big things that they can get hurt, but uh, you tell them little lies here and there, and then see how they react to it, and then explain to them what you know that this is training how to how to be uh, critical about things. Well, and you were giving him some of the same message. Test what you hear, and especially test it when it's coming from somebody you trust. Don't, don't let that person off the hook for testing what you hear from them. Yeah. And it, one other thing, too, you talked about the network of liars. I remember uh, back in it was 2002, 2003, when we were gearing up for the Iraq war and some of the manipulation that was taking place back then. And they would they being the network of what I would consider to be liars about the situation, what's taking place in Iraq, um, they would go around and plant stories in places like the New York Times on purpose. And then the next morning on the Sunday morning talk shows, they would talk about it and cite the New York Times as being you know, their, their, uh, their resource. And it was what I would call circular lying because you're lying in two different <laughs> places at the same time. And, you know, bringing them both together and say, see, I'm telling the truth because everybody else is talking about it. Yeah, well, that's and, and in fact, that's a technique that I mentioned about. I think there are more than 20 different techniques. That's not one that I included. Maybe I should uh, look at including that that one in a future edition. Yeah, yeah. Multi-sourcing your lies in a sense. Um, one other thing, too, you bring up religion quite a bit. And what I find interesting in, in these lesson plans is that you put some quotes in there from the Bible, from, from Jesus and, and disciples and apostles and so on, which is really interesting to me because they, the, they being, again, the manipulators will, will pick and choose certain concepts out of the Bible and use them. And that actually use them to manipulate or use them to forfeit, to uh, fortify their manipulations. And that, that brings me to another more general idea is that facts alone don't necessarily constitute a convincing argument, right? Because you can always, you, you pull out, in fact, you talk about um, having anecdotal information. Well, that is a fact. As somebody, something happened that was unusual, but it's still a fact. And then you can draw large conclusions from it when indeed that fact in isolation doesn't mean much. It has to be fortified with um, uh, analysis to, uh, to see if there's actual trends there. I always, I always talk about it being math and logic has to also be included along with the facts. Yeah, sometimes um, you run into a lot of instances where people will convince you of the truth of their position by, uh, by pulling out an anecdote. But really the only way to get to truth in many instances is not through the use of, a, of one or two anecdotes. It's through the use of the right use of, uh, of statistics. And that's a pretty hard area because it's difficult for most people to understand uh, unless they have more of a math and statistics background. It, it, but the fact is that you, 
you can only get to the truth about a large situation, let's say something like COVID, uh, through the proper diligent use of statistics. And the reason for that is because with statistics, now you're not just talking about one anecdote, you, or one experience, you're talking about being able to look at and sum up the experience of everybody who, who has experience with it, or at least a large number of people who have experience with that. And I actually had a personal situation that kind of illustrates this. Uh, I had a couple of friends on Facebook and I was having conversations with them on Facebook. We'd been friends for a long time, 20 years or something. And both of these guys were pushing a film that they had seen during the whole COVID pandemic about uh, uh, the film was based, the message of the film was that vaccines are dangerous, don't get the vaccine. And the way that was communicated and hammered home was the makers of the film had gone out and they had found every example they could of people who had gotten a vaccine and had had some sort of, a, of adverse reaction to it. And then they compiled those and they told those personal stories again and again and again, each story. And, and personal stories are very powerful and we tend to be moved by personal stories and believe personal stories. But the thing that you weren't getting was that they had selected only those personal stories that made the point that they were trying to make and they had ignored all the hundreds of thousands of other personal stories that told a completely opposite experience. And so I said, you know, I said to both of these friends, look, this is what they're doing. And if you look at the entire experience of everybody who's gotten these vaccines, in almost every instance, these are life-saving vaccines that aren't going to make you worse. They're going to protect you. They're going to they're going to make you better. My my reasoning to them uh, fell on deaf ears about a month or so later. One of these old friends came down with COVID. He was not vaccinated. Uh, instead of having a very mild case of COVID, as was the case with everybody I know personally who got the vaccine, if, if they, you know, if they got COVID at all, he was unvaccinated. He went into the hospital. He was on a ventilator for a week and a half, and he was one of the few people who were fortunate enough to make it off of the ventilator alive. But it, it, it almost killed him when he got out of the hospital. He was unable to walk. I haven't been in close touch with him. I suspect he's had ongoing uh, severe health effects for a long period of time. But it all could have been avoided if he had understood some of the principles that I talk about in the course. And one of those is don't just rely on anecdotes because an anecdote is not the experience of everybody. Yeah. Well, I think you hit upon it in your in, in your in your lesson. I think you said something like stories over truth. People are more likely to believe a story than they are the truth because human mind is attracted to stories. They can understand stories. 
the we truth is the more difficult. Yeah, we love stories. Yeah, I mean, every and, movie, and, every book, whatever, it, it's all a story, right? Yeah, and you know, and they're great for illustrating the truth, but they're also great for illustrating something that really isn't true as well, or is true only in very limited circumstances and isn't true 99% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. I really enjoy this conversation, but we do have to wrap this up pretty soon. I, I did have one final question for you, though, is uh, you are is as I mentioned in the beginning at the top that we were uh, you were running uh, for US Congress. And assuming that you win the primary and and assuming you win the general and find yourself in Washington, D.C., how do you plan to use the lessons in this book when working within the halls of Congress? So my goal is to work with other people to positively transform the country. Uh, again, one of the things that I realized is that we've got all of the resources that we need to do that. Uh, right now, uh, we produce twice as much wealth per person as we were producing back in 1978. If we were to bring back an American dream economy, it would unleash a flood of prosperity that would positively transform life for nine out of every 10 of us. So I don't care whether, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent or some other party, the things that I'm talking about have the potential to reshape the future. And we know that they're doable because we did these kind of things before. We gave birth to the American dream in the first place. And if we did it the first time, we can do it again. We only need to agree on doing it. And the, the resources are certainly there. Um, if I should have the ability, uh, have the honor of going to Congress, what, the first thing I'm gonna do is do everything I can to represent the people of Southwest Missouri well. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, what I have is a message that needs to be, it needs to go to the national stage because ultimately uh, one representative in Congress is only one representative. Now, I, if I should go to Congress, I will introduce legislation along the lines I've talked about. I will introduce legislation for comprehensive, thorough, no holds barred, anti-corruption reform. And I will introduce legislation to bring back an American dream economy. But perhaps even more important that, than that will be the ability to bring the conversation more to a national stage and, and to begin to get more people on board for what should be uh, an, an obvious thing that we need to do, that we can do, and that we must do. Well put. Well, where can our listeners go or what can they do to learn more about your campaign and the course that's called How We Fix America by John Woodman? Where can they go to learn more about all this? They can uh, see a bit more about my campaign at johnmwoodman.com. And there's there's more information there. There's a link in the upper right where people can donate to my campaign. Uh, I'm facing opponents that have a lot of big money behind them. Uh, donations are always appreciated. 
there should be a link to the course from there as well, but you can also get there a bit more directly by going to howwefixamerica.com. It's not how to fix America. It's how we fix them, how we together, how we fix America.com. Uh, and you can get the book off Amazon. Okay. And the johnmwoodman.com, that's all one word, right? No hyphens, no underscores, johnmwoodman.com. It, it's all one word. Okay, good. Yes. So we've been talking with John Woodman, author of the course book, How We Fix America, and candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives representing the 7th District in Missouri. John, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move today, and good luck in your campaign. Thank you so much, Dan. Really enjoyed talking with you. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>